Good morning, church. Turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew this morning. Book of Matthew, verse chapter 16. Let's look at a very familiar passage of Scripture that many of us have heard many, many times before, but I want to pull some different things from it today. Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, the, the, to, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. Okay, but what about you, Jesus said? What, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Who do they say that I am? If you go out into the culture today, you go out into the workplace, go out on the street and begin to talk about God, how many of you know that you'll get a lot of different definitions as to who God is? Is he the God of the Bible that you and I hold? Is he, is he the God of the Koran? Is he the God of maybe some other religion or maybe a combination of of, of religions that you've brought together in, in, in some kind of a new age form, and this is God. But Jesus is asking a very legitimate question. Who do, who do they say that I am? But then he asks the most important question, who do you say that I am? You see, this identification of who God really is, it begins with an initiation from heaven. You didn't learn this from man. How many of you know that you cannot be taught or preached into who God is? Can't do it. Why is that? Well, we have some information, but what we cannot do as humans is we cannot bring revelation. What has to happen? Something from heaven has to occur. Whereby which the deception that we were under now Revelation comes, the deception is broken, and we can see God for who he truly is. This is something man can't do. This is something that is miraculous. It's supernatural in its orientation. And then Jesus says, you're blessed. You're not blessed because you can count it. You're not blessed because you can drive it. You're not blessed because something's happened in your physical body. You're blessed... Because you have this revelation. Sometimes I think we fail to realize because we quantify blessings so many times of those things we can put our hands on. That you realize the greatest blessing that we have is that heaven has chosen to reveal God to you and I. I mean, let me just tell you, everything else comes from that spot. And we find that everything else happening, building on this revelation. I can build something now. You know, there's a lot of building going on, but the reality is 
Scripture says that you can build on no other foundation other than that, which is Jesus Christ. You can't build on any other foundation. Or you can try, but let me just tell you, when the winds come up and the waters rise, it ain't going to work, is it? Building starts here. Victory starts here. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And then finally, access, keys to the kingdom. All beginning, though, on who this God is. And therein is the challenge for you and I. The reason that maybe we're not having, we're not seeing the blessings, the victory, the access that we like. Perhaps we have this identification of who God is slightly wrong. Who do they say and who do you say that I am? Moses wanted an answer to this question. God had given him a little assignment. I want, to, I want you to go into the most powerful nation, the most powerful leader that the earth has ever known, and I want you to take a few million people out of bondage. Quite a little task for an old man. In Exodus, Exodus the third chapter, Moses said to God, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? What's his name? What should I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, you know, Bob would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, seriously. You know, well, what's God's name? Bob. Bob. Or in Hebrew, bud. But no, I mean, God has to describe himself using a verb. I mean, most of our names, they're, they're proper nouns. And so the name means something. You name your child this and you get the little book and, you know, this means that. And in Hebrew, a name always pointed to some destiny of some attribute of that individual But God didn't want to limit himself just to nouns and adjectives. God wanted the definition of himself to be so expansive as to not just be limited to those attributes that you and I could give him. Well, he's he's perfect, he's holy, he's good, you know, he's all of these things. But God said, no, 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 let's move beyond that. Why don't I just call myself a verb? I am that I am. I was that I was and I am that I always will be. Pretty inclusive definition. And yet, in our difficulty to define the divine, many times it's easier just to apply human or anthropomorphic attributes to God. Again, we find all these good things that we can say about God. We, we sing these worship songs and they, and they have these, these marvelous sentiments about who God is. And yet... Even in our fullest understanding of who God is in the moment, and even at our greatest command of the language, we are still so limited in trying to fully describe or understand Him. It's the limitations of humanity. And in this limitation, many times, our definition falls way short. You see, God was and still is pretty specific about this whole, let's get this God thing right. Because you see, when we begin to try to 
bring our definition of who God is, invariably we begin to craft something of God that may or may not really be who he is at all. Exodus. You shall have what? No other gods. Right out of the box. Very first one. Some people say if you can get this one right, the other nine are not necessary. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, very, very similar to it. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Heaven above, earth beneath, waters below. But let me have you consider something with me this morning. I brought my plastic Jesus with me today. And this is not just any plastic Jesus. This is a very special plastic Jesus. I bought it from the Christian bookstore. Many, many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, I think the Whitakers may be the only people who've ever seen my plastic Jesus up to this moment. And this Jesus was actually on the half-off rack. See, some of you don't know whether to laugh or just wait for, God's going to strike that fool down. We're going to... And we're going to be right here a witness to it. So you don't quite know, you're not quite sure what to do here. Well, you should be laughing about this. But this Jesus is very special. He has movable, articulated arms. You can make this Jesus into almost any pose that you need for him to be. This Jesus, this Jesus has gliding action as well. This Jesus has little wheels on his feet. Oh, yes. So Jesus, Jesus can roll up into your situation. You can, just, you can just have him glide right on up into your circumstance. And then you can bend his arms up any way to bring you blessing. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Now, I, I, I guess... I guess a walking on water, there must be a, like an accessory pontoon kit that you can get. But that wasn't on the sale rack at the Christian bookstore. But you know, the amazing thing about this plastic Jesus, number one, it's containable. You know, it, it's what I think Jesus should look like. And you know, it's small. I can get my arms around it. I can fully understand it. I mean, I, 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 I kind of like it. The articulated limbs can make him do what I need for him to do. The gliding action and the fact that this Jesus is made from high impact injection molded thermoplastic. I had to do some research on that. Because you see, thermoplastics are amazing. That as they're heated up, their ability to soften and flow upon heating. And the injection molding consists of high pressure of that material into a mold which shapes the plastic into the desired shape. The ability to soften and flow upon heating. Formed under pressure. Easily molded. It sounds a lot like me. A lot to me like this is what's supposed to be happening to us rather than what we would have happened to Jesus. Uh-oh. 
Because you realize that someone in China, the mold maker, decided this is what Jesus should look like. Seriously, somebody had to sit down and, and to make a mold that the plastic would go into and decide that this is what he would look like. And we need to make it affordable, accessible. Hence, he was on the 50% off rack. And so we, 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 need, we need him to be inexpensive. We need to make him attractive. Package him in such a way that people will bring him down off the shelf and take him home with them. Oh, it sounds a lot like the gospel that we hear preached. How attractive can we make this God? How can we mold and craft him in such a way that many people will bring him down and take him home and hopefully put him in a prominent place with the rest of their toys? Being moldable and changeable we find a characteristic of this form of Jesus that is nothing like anything of the real Jesus. Because we know one of the characteristics of God is that he's what? Immutable. He's absolutely unchanging. Guess what? You and I are the ones that under heat and under pressure are supposed to do what? Change. Come on. But God doesn't change. Why is that? Let me just tell you, if the pressure and the heat of Calvary wouldn't change God, hear me, nothing will, including who he is in your situation or who you want him to be in your situation. Hold on to that thought just for a moment. He doesn't change, James 1.17. He doesn't circumstantially change, 1 Samuel 15.29. He's not a God, that he, not a man that he should change his mind. And we find Scripture is rife with these plastic gods or these man-made gods. Aaron, Exodus 32. says, The people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. Do you realize that many times it's in the gap between the last thing that we saw God do and the next thing that we need for him to do, it's in that time period that we allow other gods to step in. Hear me. And maybe they, now I'm not talking about, listen, I'm not talking about the gods of stone and wood. Pastor Brett and I went to India some years ago and as you traveled, literally you would go from block to block and every block had their own God. Because you could see carved out on a tree or on the side of a building and fruit and flowers and offerings that were being made to that God. Can you imagine trying to keep millions of gods happy? Think about that. I mean, we're talking about trying to come into some revelation of one God and serve him well. I cannot even begin to imagine trying to do that with thousands or millions of gods. It's a little bit like polygamy. I don't get it. Seriously, 36 years of marriage to one woman, I'm just trying to figure this out with one. <laughs> to have a whole house, for, I, no. <laughs> and so here Moses is so long in coming back, the same Moses now, 
But he's just, he's getting instructions for how this nation is to live. And so what did they say? We don't know what happened to him. I know he brought us up out of Egypt and he and God are like that and miracles and all that. But he's, that was a long time ago, like days. What have you done for me lately? That's been days. And so make us some gods. You know the story. They took their earrings and they took their gold and Aaron crafted a calf for them. But look at, look at where this emanated from. They said, not Aaron, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So who's doing the defining now? The nation, not God. Second, Mount Carmel, Elijah. Hey, listen, if the Baal's God, serve him. Go ahead. But if God is God, then worship him. See, God's not afraid of these moments where he's put out there. Baal, and you remember the story of the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel? I mean, Baal was doing nothing. Why? Because Baal didn't exist. Baal had no means to respond because he was an invention of human imagination. Paul, in Athens, Acts 17, listen to this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. We're talking about covering all your bases. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by hands. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So then this begs a question. And if you wish, the most important question for our lives. Is the God we serve, the gospel we preach, and the worship we offer, is it to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, Or is it a God that's a byproduct of our culture, our imagination, or maybe even our expectation? First of all, a cultural God. You know, every culture creates their own deities. Every generation has their own. And you may say, well, I don't don't know of any particular God that I serve, but listen to me. Whenever you craft your own set of laws, your own set of rules to live by, there's a corresponding deity that goes with that. And so in any generation or any culture where we are beginning to step away from that which God has already spoken, listen to me carefully, because we know that God's word and God's person are what? The same. It means that when we say, well, now, That's not really true, but this is true over here. Then not only have we denied God's word, but in essence, what we're saying is that what? We've denied God at the same, in the same breath. It's amazing. Cultural gods. 
And this morning as I got ready to preach, I looked down and I looked at the company that made our plastic Jesus. And the company is accoutrements. And here's their tagline. Outfitters of popular culture. Outfitters of popular culture. Once again, we want a popular Jesus. We want a Jesus that's going to be relevant, accommodating to this generation. It makes the gospel that we preach so much easier. The problem is in doing that, we literally create other gods and don't even know we've done it. And see, God knew this was going to be an issue. And you can see consistently throughout the Old Testament, the prophets enjoining God's people to say, don't follow other gods. God knew this was going to be a problem. If he didn't, he would not have committed the first and second commandment to these very issues right here. Deuteronomy 11, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And once again, saints, listen to me. These are not gods that maybe, maybe once again, that we've got carved out, carved in the side of our house. And we're not offering physical sacrifices. But let me tell you, gods can crop up and pop up many times and we don't even know what's happened. Gods of amusement. Certain cultural gods that say, you must do this and dress like this, that demand their own worship. They, they have their own set of rules and regulations to live by. And that God that always allows more. Cultural gods always slide people toward greater comfort rather than greater conformity. A God that changes his mind situationally about those things that his very spirit has already spoken to in Scripture. Gods of our imagination. C.S. Lewis says it this way. My idea of God is not a divine idea. Again, this is C.S. Lewis. It has to be shattered time after time. Meaning that this is an ongoing thing. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Now, before you get nervous and start to Google iconoclast, let me help you with that word. It's simply something that destroys an idea or an ideal of what something is. An icon, if you wish. And this is Lewis saying that this is something that has to happen over and over again. I love listening to my grandson's talk about God. In a, with their three-year-old imaginations. It's marvelous. It's rich. It's an idea of who God is. But let me say that their idea of who God is and their imagination at three would be pretty retarded at 33. Are you with me? Something, would, something needs to evolve in terms of what? Who God really is. How many of you know that who God is is much different than what you thought 10 years ago? I mean, if you've been walking with God for a moment, you realize that you had it all figured out. Boy, I remember the happiest time of my existence as a Christian were the first 90 days because I knew everything. I did. I had God all figured out. I knew exactly. I had nothing. And then you walk with God for a moment and you realize, well, I know absolutely nothing. Because I had created a God 
of my own imagination. Who we want him to be. Oh, I like that New Testament God. Yeah, I like that, that, that Jesus thing and that love. God is love. And I like that New Testament God. I'm glad that he came and replaced that Old Testament God. Man, that Old Testament dude, he was angry. You know, that, I mean, and bloody. Oh, my gosh. Circumcision, animal sacrifices, genocide. I mean, he's angry guy. I'm so glad that we got God 2.0 in the New Testament. <laughs> New and improved, happy God. I got real bad news for you. He's the same God. He's still holy. He still demands blood sacrifice for sin. The good news is Jesus did that for us once and for all. Hence the table we celebrated a few moments ago. But the God of our imagination, we want the Bruce Almighty God. That our prayer request goes up and there's a yes button on his keyboard. Yes. I want a new yes. God, I, yes. I mean, because we really think that's how it works. We put our tithe in the slot and we get a yes back. How many of you know it doesn't work that way? Imagination. The God in your mind doesn't exist. It's why the God in your mind often fails you. Expectations. I thought. I thought. I thought God would do it this way. Naaman. 2 Kings 5. You know this story for the sake of time. I won't tell it. But I mean, here's, he, he's coming. He's got this, this, this condition that medical community can't touch. And the prophet says, do this. And he says, I don't do that. Fooey. I thought that the man of God would come out. And wave his arm over the spot and make it better. And what was Naaman's response? It says he went away angry. Thank goodness there were some servants that said, are you crazy? The man has given you an opportunity to get well. Get yourself down in that river and get whole. But you see, Naaman almost missed it. Why? Because of expectation. My wife had a cancer scare the early part of this year. And we did everything right. My wife does everything right. She exercises. She eats right. She even watches the right stuff on the television. I mean, my wife, she does everything right. And then spiritually, we did everything right. We called the elders of the church. We had people pray. People around the world that prayed. I, I mean, I got my declaring decree on and my shundai, and I did my whole charismatic Pentecostal thing. And you know what? God didn't heal her. Supernaturally. God used a doctor. He used a surgeon. And she's fine now. But listen to me. What if I had just hung on to my expectation? Well, God, I know this is how you want to do it. That you don't want to put my wife through the discomfort or the fear of a procedure. Expectation. How many times do we place those expectations on God? And this is where many times we have a faith crisis right here. 
Because if we place an expectation of false faith in a God who doesn't exist, God in His grace will have that thing fail. Listen to me. Because faith that's not connected with an authenticated God is simply presumption. It's what we want God to do. It's what we assume God would do. If I were God, that's what I would do. Well, thank God you're not God. Thank God I'm not God. Because I look back at some of the knots that he brought me through and realize it was the only way he could get this knucklehead's attention. Oh, it would have been easier if he just hit the yes button. Jeremiah says it this way. and I'm just reading the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. Look it up when you get home so you know I'm not making this up. My people are fools. They don't know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. And yet Ephesians 5.17 says not to be foolish, but to understand what the Lord's will is. Listen to me. You can't have understanding of His will without having a knowledge of His person. You can't separate His will, His word, and His person. They're so inextricably connected together that they are one. Oh, I just want the will of God. You can't have the will of God without God. Are you with me? Oh, I'm just, I'm confessing God's word in my life. Yes, but who is that word connected to? Is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is it the God of your imagination and expectation? And then finally, definition. God defines himself. We get it, invariably we get in trouble when we try to bring definition to God. Now God helps us. He gives us words. He, you know, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. He gives us some, some hints, but they all fall far short. And this is why we have to have revelation. This is why Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't give you this. Here's how revelation works. It works one drop at a time. Throughout our life. That's how it works. Because you see, if God gave you the full revelation of who he was at once, you die. How do we know that? Because Moses asked for it. God, show me your glory. This is Moses now, not you and me. This is Moses. Show me your glory. He said, "Uh uh-uh, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. I'll walk by. I'm going to cover you up over here. You can, you can watch my backsides as I leave, but if you saw it, you would die. This is why God parses out revelation to us over the course of our life. And in that revelation, he brings identification. He brings authentication of who he is. And he does that in a myriad of different ways. He does that by his spirit. He does that through signs and wonders. He does that because we know we serve a risen Savior. All of these. Galatians 4, 6. He says, he put the spirit of his son in us that cries out, Abba, Father. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
This is not a question. This is the question. And this is not just the question for those who have yet to come into the household of faith, into the kingdom of God. This is not just a a question of salvation. But this becomes the ongoing question for you and I every day of our life. Have we somehow crafted a plastic Jesus? Who's inexpensive, easily accessible, that we can manipulate his movements based on our whim and our will? Or do we serve a God that's so far and away beyond anything that we can begin to bring that kind of definition to? For some of you this morning, perhaps the promises of Matthew have been elusive victory, access to the kingdom. Let me tell you, it begins with a fresh revelation of who God really is. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, let us get all of the plastic Jesus out of our life. Inexpensive, easy, Moldable to our will. Products of our expectation, imagination, and even culture. Lord, define yourself to us by revelation of who you really are. Not what we want you to do and who we want you to be. But who you really are.